To humans, wake up, wise up, do what you can individually and together. Welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. My name is Serena Simons, and I'm here with today's producer, Hannah Mulvaney, who has been essentially stuck in New Zealand um, because of the pandemic this entire time and is literally at the airport mid travel trying to get out. So Hannah, how are you? And how has all this been for you? We've been in a real bubble in New Zealand. And it's been, obviously, I have access to the outside world through my family and my friends and <clears throat> colleagues and whatever else. But I haven't known COVID to in its full force yet. Like we have like, at the moment, we have like 30 cases a day. <laughs> I think 2,400 cases in the entire pandemic Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. So like for me to get on a, to like get back to Europe today is going to be really insane. Like the cases on Thursday in the UK were like 93,000 cases in a day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that, that comparison is just absolutely mind blowing. So yeah, it's um, mm. mm-hmm. but that's so. I mean, so if like from your perspective, looking out at the news globally, did it just feel like a complete shit show in the world? Like, did it just seem like a bomb went off? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's just obviously. I think the rest of the world's been looking at New Zealand and looking at Jacinda Ardern and just been thinking like, wow, <laughs> <laughs> exemplary. That's what exemplary leadership is, yeah. and also like just this um culture of community Mm -hmm. um that they have in New Zealand as well like it's something that I've noticed since getting here it's just that every people are kind to each other people help each other out there's still this um neighborly attitude towards Mm -hmm. your fellow person like and it's something that living in a really small community of like 16,000 people on the south island of New Zealand um everybody just helps each other and is just so wonderful and kind. And I think the kindness is something that I've noted within the culture of New Zealand. And it's something that really shows with regards to everybody wanting to take care of each other by following rules and by wearing masks and by doing all of the things that help protect other people. Um, and because people care about each other and it's just mm-hmm. wonderful it's been wonderful to be surrounded by so yeah I mean re-entering a society where <laughs> because of a massive amount of population that's been lost the, just the way that society's kind of gone into a bit of an every person for themselves and every mm-hmm. family for themselves kind of um mentality um, which is just shouldn't it's not how, how society should be yeah. It's comforting that everybody is going through the same stuff though. I think we're going to come out of this and somehow is going to have changed us some kind of way. Hopefully I think for the better, but man, I would not want to be traveling right now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, as much as all the do this doom and gloom is at the end of my journey, there's also my family that I haven't seen for almost two years waiting yeah. for me. So yeah. that just fills me with joy. Like last Christmas, I watched Love Actually, which was just the worst idea. I took my friend who's also from the UK to the cinema to go watch Love Actually. And at the beginning, there's that scene where it's just everyone waiting for their families at Heathrow. And me and my friend just started crying our eyes out, like both of us. And it's the first scene of that film. And you could hear because there's quite a high population of um, people from the UK down on the South Island in New Zealand. There was like eight other people in the cinema blubbing. Like you could hear people like, (laughs) (laughs) you guys were all stuck there. And then my friend turned around to me, she was like, great choice. (laughs) 
I'm so sorry, but that's going to be me at Berlin Airport tomorrow at 12, 10 p.m. Berlin time. However many hours ahead mm-hmm. that is of me right now, I have mm-hmm. no idea. But that's going to be, be so me and my sister, it. and that's what I'm looking forward to. That's all I want for you, Hannah. That's all I want. <laughs> anyway, um, among all of the free time that we both have, you had time to put together this episode for this week's um, Earth to Humans. And it was such a fascinating, unexpected intersection that I don't think we've touched on very much on the podcast. And we're, you know, this this new direction of the show is all about these intersections in environment and social justice, you know, people and nature. Um, and this was a, a really fascinating exploration into all of these issues as it relates to the earth and feminism and masculinity and all of these sort of socializations and how it's impacted our society. So I'm really excited for our listeners to hear this episode, but I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you came across today's guest and um, the topic for the show. So I studied environmental feminism at uni actually it was a module that I did so this is going back about nine years ago now and it was something that at the time I thought what like what how are those two things even linked and I think over time of working in the environmental field I've always noticed that it's just women like everywhere like you go to an environmental conference Mm -hmm. and there's just women and like wildlife conservation conferences just and you receive any email you receive from someone that works at a conservation organization it always seems to be a female identifying person Mm -hmm. and it's something that I've always wondered as to why um like why that is the case um and then also looking at the most environmentally friendly people that I know these kind of like icons of of conservation and the whole mother earth kind of rhetoric like why why mother why (laughs) why and and it's just something that I've kind of always been quite interested by yeah and so the the guest today is is Cara Daggett who is a professor at Virginia Tech University and she had written this paper about something called petromasculinity and as much as I had done lots of research into environmental feminism and that almost being a positive thing a positive Mm -hmm. spin on environmentalism this petromasculinity seemed to almost be the counter Mm -hmm. to environmental feminism Um, and so I read the article and I was just completely fascinated by it because I'd actually never thought about how association to climate changing fossil fuels had such a big relationship with identity mm-hmm. and the identity being this typically masculine force mm-hmm. and it's something that she explains in such great detail within this article that it just made so much sense to me as I was reading it I was like that is such a, an incredible point um it's a, just an incredible way that she looks at things and I was just fascinated and I just wanted to talk to her so much (laughs) after reading the article so I felt really lucky to be able to have this conversation with her yeah you know your perspective as somebody who's studied um, environmental feminism and is a feminist and is an outdoors woman and is a biologist and all these things um, it just comes together really nicely in this episode so I'm really really excited about it and it's so timely too Um, you know I saw today that Joe Manchin has blocked Joe Biden's Um, you know, climate agenda pretty much dead in the water after months and months of negotiation. And um, he's uh, very heavily tied to the coal industry. And, you know, he's um, he's got a lot of these sort of toxic masculine traits that we could identify and, you know, relate back to his stance on climate, which is really interesting, Um, you know, and sort of as a force of blockade and just going backwards almost and, and um, you know, being afraid of progress and wanting things to stay the same as we touched in this episode. So thank you, Hannah, for bringing us uh, this episode of the Earth Humans podcast and um, let's get into it. Would 
would you like to start by introducing yourself? Sure. This is Kara Daggett. I am an assistant professor at Virginia Tech, which is in Blacksburg, Virginia, in the Appalachian Mountains of the U.S., And I teach about energy and politics and study those things with a critical and feminist lens. Okay, so something that I always love to know is how scientists and academics got to the point where they're at today. So how you carved your path into the research that you currently do. So how did you kind of start out and end up studying such a fascinating topic? Probably like most people that you ask serendipitously a little. So I studied science as an undergraduate. Biochemistry was my major field. And I thought I was going to become a medical doctor. So I've always been interested in science, but also in social justice. So I was really interested in public health and disparities in health outcomes between the global north and the global south. And that took me on a course to studying global politics to try to better understand the kind of political dimensions of health outcomes. And I sort of fell in love with that. And I think gave myself permission to leave science, which as a woman, there was a bit of a There's a lot of cheerleading to be a woman in science, and I think I needed to kind of let myself leave. But it turns out I never fully left because I've always remained interested in the politics of science and technology. As a graduate student, started reading a lot in literatures about technology and science, and inevitably, when you do that, you come up against environmental movements and problems as a central nexus where those questions appear. And yeah, I think as I was reading, I remember thinking about, you know, it would be interesting to talk about carbon, like why carbon is kind of a building block of life. How does it become this political word and concept and what kind of work does that do? But when I was pondering that question, somehow I kind of got more interested in a similar question about energy. How did energy come to mean fuel? And it's got all these kind of poetic philosophical meanings to it. And so that became my book, which is called The Birth of Energy. And it's really challenging this idea that energy is this natural, timeless, apolitical unit, but that actually the way we think about energy is really has to do with Western culture and the way we think about work and productivity. So that's how I kind of arrived at my interest in energy. And then the article I wrote that you want to talk about, which is about petromasculinity, about, you know, a feminist or gender approach to thinking about the problem of energy. So just before we kind of delve into that, your book about the birth of energy, it talks about going back, like looking back at when energy became almost like a a saleable unit almost. And then that seems to have kind of influenced your research and been the building block for what you've then gone on to study since. Like, can you describe what happened with regards to that? Like what point in our history did energy become a saleable unit and something that became political? Yeah, so I think I expected that energy would have this kind of long ancient intellectual history, the same way that something like matter does. I mean, obviously what scientists think about matter And things like atoms and molecules, obviously that changes a lot over time, but you can definitely find this lineage of interest and kind of a etymological history that goes back. So the interesting thing about energy is there is a lineage of thinking about conservation, like that there are things conserved through change, but the word energy itself comes actually from Aristotle. It's a philosophical and poetic word until about the middle of the 19th century, when it becomes energy as modern Western Westerners know it, a unit in physics. And 
I think what's re what really first kind of raised a lot of red flags, not necessarily red flags, but kind of my scholarly interest was that the people who claim to discover energy, which, you know, I think is, is not, it's never right to say that something is discovered in nature. But anyway, the claim for the discovery of energy was by people who are trying to figure out how to make steam engines more efficient because they were just really dramatically inefficient and in part because people didn't understand how heat worked. And so this interest, which is very much an engineering interest, and the field of engineering is born at about the same time, this, the notion of engineering, the idea about practicality, utility, making things work, efficiency, all of those kind of interests really fed into the way that energy and these kind of laws of physics entered into the political discipline of work at the time. So a lot was changing in the middle of the 19th century, right? This is industrialization. This is the acceleration of fossil fuels. And so I am pushing us to think about energy in this way of the way we assume energy is connected to work and productivity and somehow physics licensing it as this like natural cosmic truth that actually there's lots of ways of understanding energy. Energy itself, even within physics is really complicated. And soon after thermodynamics, you have things like relativity, quantum mechanics, which kind of throw a lot of sureties out that we think about energy. So my argument is that whenever we talk about energy politically, we're still very much applying this engineer's understanding of energy about like doing work and that being a good thing. And so you can even see it as simply as, you know, think about every energy policy you see, it's always connected to jobs. So it's connected to this idea that what we need is more and more and more and more work and putting everything in the world to work and putting all the energy to work rather than, you know, thinking differently about it. And do you think at this point in time, we're quite fixated on energy as a construct? I think that energy has become one of the lenses through which we see solutions to the climate crisis. And I think that's right. Obviously, fossil fuels are one of the key problems. But I, I think that for the most part, it's still difficult to disrupt the notion that more energy is always a good thing or that we, everything needs to be put into motion. Everything needs to be kind of working most productively or effectively. And the book kind of really looks at this question historically too, by thinking about gender and race, because a lot of the way that we value what kind of work is the most important is according to gendered and racialized structures. And so, for example, from a feminist perspective, a lot of the actual work, if you just think about purposeful activity that is done to reproduce the world each day is not counted as work. It's not, it's not paid and it's not really valued. So those are some of the things that get lost in a lot of talk about like a green new deal and green jobs, because most of the time we're not really talking about reproductive labor and how we value that, for example. And that kind of care work is often much less just as a practical matter, much less energy and environmentally destructive or intensive. Hmm. So I think something that you've just touched on with regards to your discussion of energy, it brings to mind something that we actually spoke about during the last season of Earth to Humans, which was actually looking at why all of the, the main focus of climate change solutions seems to be centered around creating more things. So within our society, we're looking at electric cars, we're looking at all of these solutions, and none of them look at necessarily preservation and, and about a caring attitude towards the nature that we have it's all about creating more things that allow us to use more energy and process it in a different way to allow for our high energy lifestyles rather than actually looking at reducing the energy that we use and there seems to have been this never-ending increase in the energy that we use as human beings and it just seems to keep going up and up and up and by creating these electric cars and renewable energy 
it seems like the attitude is that we can carry on as usual with exponential growth and we're never going to reach a point because technology and science is always going to come in to allow us to do that (laughs) and that's something that we yeah we spoke about in the previous season so the solution to that would be to change our view on energy and realize that it isn't a completely it is an exhaustive resource like there's only so much that we can take before we reach a point of growth where it just it stops and technology and and science can only do so much for us as animals that essentially rely on the planet I'm worried about accepting a framing in which environmentalists get backed into the corner of sacrifice and asceticism and reduction because I think we can not only rethink energy in terms of why are we constantly, like you said, why are we constantly more, more, let's have more solar, more jobs, more infrastructure, more, 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 more. It's true, but what we can also ask is what are we not maximizing, right? So what, I think it's, there's a lot of empirical evidence that it is not making even the most privileged of us, it's not necessarily maximizing well-being. It's not necessarily maximizing health. It's not maximizing really nurturing food. It's not maximizing community. So I guess I'm interested too in kind of telling stories about what kinds of things do we want to dream about and reach for and maximize and have more of, and to recognize that having more energy doesn't always get us there. Now, that's not to say that we have to be anti-technology or anti, you know, we have to ignore the fact that it is nice to have machines for some things and energy for some things. But, you know, what gets lost is that to a certain point, I've seen studies both for income and also for energy consumption, that to a certain point, of course, having more money and having energy in terms of, you know, thinking about people who are in energy poverty, of course, to a point that does help with well-being in terms of quality of life and having access to things that meet basic needs. But there's a certain point and the global north is way beyond that point where there are no, they're not really gains in well-being and health from more and more and more. That's a complicated story, but I think one thing in my book I talk about is that it's really dangerous that then environmentalists get put in our corner of telling people you can't have that, you know, you have to give it up and you have to sacrifice. I mean, not only does that, sometimes that risks going into kind of an an individualist lens of like each person has to kind of become an environmental purist, but also it's really like an anti-pleasure message. And I, I think there is a message we could have that is about new ways of thinking about pleasure. I love the expression anti-pleasure message because I I feel like there are certain things that as an environmentalist I restrict myself from having and it's uh, we're obviously recording this during Plastic Free July which is this global initiative trying to get people to cut down their plastic or even just be more mindful of their plastic consumption throughout the course of July and I'm missing potato chips <laughs> so much like because you just can't buy them and and it is and obviously that's something that gives me pleasure <laughs> as I'm sure it gives people lots of pleasure around the world. But even just something as simple as that, it's quite a, it is an anti-pleasure thing where you're thinking, oh, I'd like, yeah, I can't have that. And that's obviously such a minute thing to give up. It's something I can definitely live without and something that, that has throughout the month gone to the back of my mind. But at the beginning of the month, it was a, a thing for me. And then what we're actually doing as environmentalists is looking at the big picture and about the scary topic that is climate change and and kind of saying don't fly so like don't go to on holiday to all these places that you've always kind of wanted to go to and don't drive your car and don't do all of this stuff and you do think sometimes when like when especially when I see communications that go out from different organizations you think oh man like that's very strict (laughs) but also politically you know think about 
what are the means to force companies to not package potato chips in plastic, right? And also things like, I mean, it's all of these social justice things are intimately connected. I mean, if you think about biking, I bike to work as much as I can. However, there's half of my route where there are no bike lanes and it is scary sometimes. People drive by me really fast. The bike lanes are just not great. And so it's not always that enjoyable. Also, I have to sort of weigh that some days against my kids after school activities or if X, Y, and Z, and I'm a working mom and the U S is just abysmal in terms of work-life balance and like giving women any kind of time for all of these things. And, you know, a lot of these consumerist approaches to environmentalism weigh heaviest on women because women are the ones who do a lot of the purchasing for the household. And these are already people who don't have time. And I'm a, you know, I'm a privileged person in terms of having kind of a middle-class job, but for working moms who have multiple jobs trying to make ends meet, And then to say, like, now you have to kind of research all of your consumer decisions. I just think I'm not surprised that that is not mobilizing people Mm. as much as messages around collective action and messages around, like, how can we design our cities so that biking is an option that is desirable? Because you can actually look at studies showing that people who bike to work are healthier and happier. They have less depression, but how can we even every in the every day make this something that's really desirable? And it's not that hard. Actually, there's a lot of cities that do this. Well, this is the thing, like there are answers out there already. And this is why I study politics. Cause it's about, you know, it's about power at the end of the day. It's how do you bring these ideas into fruition against vested interests? And I think something that you've just said that I really believe in as well is that with privilege comes the time and space and energy <laughs> to be able to be more environmentally friendly like you have the space in your brain to consider those consumer options that you make in your day-to-day lives if you approach somebody that has more time on their hands about their lifestyle and things that they could introduce that are going to take them more time that are going to be more environmentally friendly they're going to be more open to doing that but not everybody has that time on their hands so these big picture lifestyle changes that a lot of environmental organizations kind of put out and recommendations that people make to be more sustainable are only really ever going to be able to be picked up on by the privileged few who have the availability to do it and it's even looking at like purchasing organic vegetables buying more sustainable products they're always more expensive than what's next to them on the shelf like there's no current access to cheaper products that are more environmentally friendly it just isn't it isn't a thing and don't get me wrong over time there is quite a few sustainable products that will save you money but it takes initial investment to be able to buy those products which not everybody has that amount of money at a certain time of the month to be able to invest in something that's going to save the money in the long term it does take a certain level of privilege and income to actually be able to be an environmentally friendly person Right. And we're also, you know, when we're telling stories about this is the politics that we want, that kind of story is positioning people who hear it as consumers. Like this is the agency you have is as a consumer. And I think we're trying, I mean, in my mind, we're trying to move to stories of pleasure that are not about buying things. Of course, we are consumption is how we live in a bigger philosophical meaning of the word. But um, I think there's other ways that we can help imagine ourselves as citizens. That's not about purchasing. And so this is why my book ends in thinking about critiques of work, which haven't always, they have, they're more and more since I wrote the book, that they haven't always been these movements against work haven't always been interacting with environmental movements and vice versa. But I think work is something that really affects people's everyday life, their time, how much 
you know, their access to well-being. It's very gendered. It's very racialized. It's very much at the heart of social justice. And I think it's very relevant to ways of life. So thinking about changing ways of life, I think thinking about how we, how we bring justice to work is a really powerful way to get at how we also become more environmentally just. Something that I've been really interested in throughout my research is to look at how people interact with, engage with and become stewards of nature. And a lot of the time you can't get somebody to love something that they have no experience of. And it's something that whilst reading your research got brought up was looking at certain commute like communities where so I think it was it was actually another podcast that you were were on when they were talking about where new like bus stations and new areas of industry were always placed in Harlem and in areas that bordered communities of color so when you look at that it stops those people from actually being able to engage with nature because they're just surrounded by industry and surrounded by building and any access to nature that they might have had on their doorstep is consistently stripped away and it's not something that's a focus of new developments and things like that access to nature isn't something that is really considered in a lot of those areas so people don't actually have that access to nature so they don't have that relationship with it and the increased well-being that comes as a result of access to nature which is something that should be free that increases well-being and doesn't involve any consumerism is just stripped away I guess I mean it mean I guess one way to get at that would be thinking about what we mean by nature and I think what what I take from what you were saying is the real importance in highlighting how toxins, pollution is sent away from privileged communities and dumped into uh, marginalized communities, whether that's communities of color or indigenous lands. The idea of throwing things away or or kind of having these one-way supply chains that we do where waste, no one's really takes responsibility for it, is premised upon an unequal distribution of, of that waste. Whether, I'm not sure, I, I definitely agree that, that this is an issue of social justice in terms of, of whether or not your where you live is surrounded by pollution. And I think that's been at real, really the motivation behind environmental justice movements worldwide is starting with that recognition and demanding to have a space that's healthy to live in. Yeah, so I think the, the thing that, as we mentioned earlier on, that initially brought me to your research was looking at how gender plays a role. So we've obviously, we've touched on privilege, we've touched on the area that you live and things like that, how that can kind of impact your relationship with the environment. And obviously something that's a really big part of your research is looking at how gender does that. So the thing that brought me into your research was actually looking at petromasculinity as a construct and looking at how fossil fuels and gender are brought in together as something that seems to have an impact on each other. So can you discuss what the definition behind petromasculinity is and what that means for you? Yeah, I think I'll talk about it by explaining why I wrote that article about petromasculinity. I wrote it in the aftermath of the 2016 election when Donald Trump won. And I was trying to really process that and understand what was happening politically in the U.S. And what I was interested in as someone who pays a lot of attention and uses feminist approaches in my research, I was interested in the fact that we had this burgeoning, what's now called the Me Too movement, in response to the clear misogyny of, of the right. And we also had this, I don't think it was necessarily a strong change. I think the right has been both misogynist and, you know, climate deniers, but it was just a much more kind of 
transparent and kind of an acceleration of support of fossil fuels. And these two things were kind of happening in, a, in silos, like the far right was misogynist. And we're going to talk over here about, you know, that. And then also they were denying climate change and supporting fossil fuels. And I wanted to think about how those two things were connected because clearly they are, they're part of a particular worldview. And so the idea of petromasculinity is pointing to how certain hegemonic masculinities or dominant versions of what it means to be a man as an, as an identity are very much wrapped up in fossil fuel cultures, industrialization, fossil fuel capitalism, both you can think of just material everyday things like highways and cars and machines and and that. And you can also think metaphorically about, you know, building on ecofeminist research about violence against the earth, the way the earth is associated with the feminine or women are associated with animals and the earth and the kind of feminization of environmentalism in general and violence against the earth than as having some relationship with willful violence against women. So the reason I'm interested in it is, is very much back to this idea about how do we tell stories about climate change and, and what are the stories that are circulating about a changing earth? And I'm concerned that a lot of scientists and very well-meaning people involved in environmentalism have kind of a rational assumption about people that what's going to happen is once people really are educated or they can see, you know, a heat wave or a forest fire, they see, you know, they see that climate change is happening. People will have this aha moment and then they'll understand we have to do something about climate change. But I think it's unfortunately a lot more complicated and it involves desire and it involves identity. It involves culture. And that's what stories are about, right? So one thing it involves is the way we conceive of ourselves in a very patriarchal culture and how that's connected to the way we think about the environment. I think as well, like we're talking to each other on the 22nd of July at a point in time where there is massive flooding there's all of these extreme weather events happening around the world and as environmentalists we spend our time doing a lot of stories about what might happen and that's coming to a point where we don't need to say what's going to happen it's what's happening right now and almost those stories get taken out of your hands and just get put in the news as a storytelling resource like you you can obviously discuss what needs to be done what has needed to be done but those stories are actually coming out on the news and it's it is a it's a scary point in time to see all of these things really really starting to ramp up and starting to happen yeah and you know those are powerful experiences I mean I've talked to people in the Pacific Northwest and I've been reading like people about people who are who do face these things and it is a reckoning and it is important so it's not to say that those won't be key events emotionally too for people it's that you know you can even see in the response among the very, very few on the right who kind of say, okay, well, we have to do something about climate change. You can see that those responses are very gendered. So for example, they'll talk about like, well, we can't have a nanny state solving it for us, or we can't do globalism and have other people control our country. Like there's sort of a hyper-masculinist nationalism all of these things are really wrapped up in each other. So you can't, you know, we can't think about environmental politics as separate. Um, but it's also on the eco-modernist left or the kind of neoliberal techno- technocratic left, people like Elon Musk, like there's a different version of masculinity there. And other scholars have called it eco-modern masculinity. But these are people who claim to be leaders on, we want to lead the world in the green transition, but there are really big problems with those approaches as well. And I think it's also wrapped up in 
what do we think about our relationship to each other and to the world? Is it one of mastery and control or something different? Mm. And that's the thing, both petro-masculinity and this eco-modern masculinity are both so destructive to the natural world. Like one of them claims to be kind of solving an issue that is actually exacerbating another. So it is a, it's replacing one issue with a different issue, which is the that destruction of the natural world to be able to create these technologies that feed into this better for the environment rhetoric that is actually completely non-representative of the processes that go into the creation of those products. Something that when I was reading about petromasculinity in the spirit of balance, I wondered if there was such a thing as petrofemininity. <laughs> and because I think it's probably much less prevalent, there's probably maybe more eco-modernist feminism because it's a solutions focus and it's a something that is focused on being better for the environment but is there that that sector of of petrofemininity is that a, a thing <laughs> yeah so you're not the first to ask me that which has prompted me to start writing about it so I am writing something about it and it's a great question because yes absolutely I mean just from the simple fact that in a patriarchal system, it's the, the, the idea about binary sex identity and that one is kind of has more power than the other. That so in a way, you know, femininity has to exist as the foil or the other side of masculinity in that kind of patriarchal system. And yeah, there is a notion of femininity that is definitely an ident a set of identities that is part of that culture. But even in terms of, of actual people, you know, you can look at the roughly half of white women who continue to support the Republican Party. And I think that's when ideas about race are really important to understanding something like petrofemininity. And so when I'm writing about it right now, I'm really thinking about particularly the petrofemininity of white women. And I think it's really important because on the one hand, it's with a piece like mine, you know, critiquing masculinity, it's easy, I think, to oversimplify things and imagine, oh, well, then the answer is femininity or the answer is like women are the answer. And there are studies that show that women tend to be more supportive of strong climate action and, you know, make better environmental choices and on and on. But I think all of these kind of behavior choices and voting patterns are also reflective of these identities and cultures. And so I don't think there's anything essential about particular women or that women in general, whatever that means, that makes women, quote unquote, women more environmentally friendly. But I do think the experiences that women have are often those that make us more attuned perhaps to the problem or, or more open to solutions. So you have then this puzzle, right? Because there's this expectation that women are more environmentally friendly, but at the same time, um, that's not the case clearly for a lot of women, not just women on the far right, but also, like you said, there's an eco, there's kind of an eco-modern feminism as well. You might even think of it allied to the sort of liberal feminism of um, I don't know if you're familiar with the term lean-in feminism. This was a book that Sheryl Sandberg wrote, who's the, I believe, the COO of Facebook. So it was this kind of feminism, like, well, the answer is women just need to, like, lean in more and take charge and be willing to, you know, that's the solution is women have just got to step up and be willing to be the powerful figures, so this idea of, uh, again, of like, well, women can be, <laughs> women can be Elon Musk too, right? There's a, there's a definitely a variant of feminism that 
supports that kind of thinking. And yeah, that's why I think it's important to bring race into the conversation because certainly on the, in terms of white women supporting the right, the support for the far right is very much tied up with white supremacy. I think we can't escape from understanding it primarily that way. And then it's just interesting to think about how what you would presume to be a kind of subordinated gender role nevertheless gets not not just accepted, but in some cases celebrated and really deeply treasured and loved. It's kind of a fascinating set of examples, I think. So I'd say the only time that I managed to really get any understanding of why women would have voted for Trump was actually reading your research. And it was something about actually not wanting anything to change. They're so used to having the role that they have and being surrounded by that, that actually the thought of change is not welcome. Well, I mean, I think there's as many different kinds of women who support the right as there are men like it's not a monolithic set so they're not all kind of desperate housewives and Mm. there's a lot of very powerful professional women and there's women who claim to be feminists who you know vote on the right in the U.S. so it's hard to kind of paint a broad brush on what's happening or why. But I think that's why if we look at something like the popular culture of conservative femininity, which is shared by both working women, all kinds of women, then we're not, you know, then we're talking about popular and widely spread stories whether the extent to which they're embraced or enacted by particular people might vary. And there, I think what you're saying is true in the sense of what climate change seems to do psychologically to everyone is very disruptive, right? It's very scary. It produces a lot of anxiety. And it's not surprising that in those moments, um, ideas about tradition or even nostalgia for a longing to return to a time, even an imagined time when things weren't so disruptive, when things were clear and settled, it makes sense. And that's when, when I talk about the kind of psychological reasons for a turn to authoritarianism is very much about this longing for order. And this is my concern with climate change is that People don't tend to do well in moments of crisis and disruption always. Like they're very, sometimes people do really well. There's a researcher named Rebecca Solnit who wrote this beautiful book about disaster and talking about how the idea that in disaster, it just becomes anarchy is wrong. That people actually do make beautiful communities in moments of crisis, but also people can be very vulnerable, I think, to authoritarianism in these moments. And so we have to know all of these possibilities as climate change continues to disrupt daily life. With patriarchy being a very destructive force and a, something that is so ingrained, like, do you believe that there is a solution to that, that there's something that could change somebody's mind about that or do you think it's so ingrained within our society that there's nothing that kind of can be done that what is ingrained the petri masculinity in itself because um, I could be completely wrong on this but I think it almost seems like something that is we when we look at like nature nurture it's something that probably is a learned behavior from quite kind of a young age like it might be something that runs in a family that runs in a community is there a way of unlearning that like do you think that there are people who choose not to engage with it and that are different and is there a way of escaping it or of it changing within a person over time well uh, that's a million dollar question for researchers right and for scholars Mm. think about like how do you change cultures how do you change destructive norms um it's a great question I do find some hope in the fact that gender norms are changing all the time, right? They're not 
actually very stable or monolithic. And I suspect that's a lot of the reason for the anxiety that we see on the right about not only women, but also trans folk and queer movements and anything to do with sex and gender. The reason that this is such a central issue is because things have and are changing in ways that you and I, I'm guessing about you, but welcome and embrace. And so in some ways you can see this reaction as kind of evidence of the real progress that has been made. And also the fact that these things can and do change. And I think a question is the extent to which that can be kind of organized or concerted and the extent to which this is kind of a emergent system that comes out of the complex patterns of behavior across millions and millions of people. But certainly that's why it's important, you know, to have increasingly visible and prominent movements for the rights of trans people, the rights of queer folk, feminist movements. And that's why I think these movements are really deeply connected also to like environmental movements to me it connects to all of these kind of social justice issues because the resistance to that change is so rooted in these toxic identities I guess this is another million dollar question as somebody who researches climate change and kind of environmental science and politics and looking at over the course of your career and then what you've just said about people wanting things to go back to the good old days when that physically cannot happen do you feel hopeful at this point in time when you look at these movements and you look at the movements on gender movements on environmentalism and things like that like do you feel like do you feel hopeful like how does how does the current global situation make you feel (laughs) I don't know I ask myself that a lot I maintain a lot of hope in people. Like people are amazing and beautiful. Even just last summer, the Black Lives Matter protests and movements in the US, that kind of stuff gives me hope because you can see that none of us are doing this alone. It's not like from my little office, it's all on me. You know, there's so many people who are hoping and wanting and willing to put a lot on the line for change. On the other hand, we're up against quite a lot. So that's sobering. And we're up against not only just the stark kind of power structures, police, military, capital, power structures, But also, like we've been talking about, we're up against stories that even capture our hearts, you know, stories that I was raised in that's about dislodging my own attachment to some of these good life fantasies and expectations and my own identity. There's a lot that needs to change, including the stories we tell ourselves and the dreams we dream. So I don't know. I go back and forth. I mean, at the end of the day, I have hope in people, but not necessarily, I just don't know. I just don't know what's going to happen. Nobody does. Yeah. What do you think? Are you hopeful? <laughs> you talk to a lot of people. You probably ask them all. I feel like what you've just said about having hope in people is something that I'm definitely attached to that. And I think the more people I speak to, the more I recognize that, yeah, it isn't just me sat trying to trying to do stuff and trying to speak to people and I know that when I'm around people I the my knowledge can have an influence on them I'm really not a preachy you should do this you should I see myself as like a fountain of knowledge that you can press a button and the fountain comes out or I can just be there I can just be a a statue (laughs) instead an inactive statue or you press a button and the water comes on and I'll be your fountain of knowledge but I think there's I think there's a lot of there's so much important good work going on at the moment so as you said in social justice in the environmental sector there's young people speaking out in a way that's never ever been seen before 
in such a massive way like obviously I wasn't around in the 60s and 70s for that <laughs> kind of thing so I, I can't reflect on that but it's been in my lifetime that I've never seen such an uprising of of young people trying to do things for the environment and people really mobilizing getting together to fight for what they believe in and yeah it's motivating I mean it's motivating at the same time you're seeing the things are so negative going on and it's like every time you seem to build yourself up to be motivated you just get knocked back down again and and I really hope that people do keep building themselves back up again and allowing themselves to be built up despite getting knocked down again because sometimes a knockdown can keep you down for a while but if you get back up again and you start connecting with other people and you start realizing that you're not alone and that actually what you're doing is having an impact then it keeps you hopeful but I think it's a roller coaster of hope (laughs) for sure (laughs) yeah yeah you kind of said about that you're writing up on petro femininity but what's the future focus of your studies like are there other aspects that you're working on as well right now I'm thinking about growth so I'm wanting to write or starting to write what I think will become a a book, book length examination of growth, kind of from the perspective of what I learned about energy and what I see as this preference for dynamism. So for movement and change and, and I think I see it in myself too. And on the left, this kind of like, it's about activism. It's about doing, and it's about constantly moving and changing. And I'm just interested in that. I wouldn't say I'm against, (laughs) against motion, but I, I think it's a modern sensibility and kind of a bias, not so much that needs to be corrected with its opposite but whether to think about how we value motion over something like lassitude or inertia or so in some ways it's dovetailing with research that's happened about slowness and or degrowth but yeah I want to dig into like also the science of it the assumptions about evolution that we have um, in terms of adaptation and change and so yeah that's where I'm going if I ever have time (laughs) whenever I find a little moment (laughs) takes a long time you know to do to do anything I'm sure your podcast too and so that's part of my kind of critiques of work is like how do we how do we find time to do the kind of thinking and work that takes time it just also takes daydreaming and Um, sometimes you can only do a very small amount of it because it's exhausting and you need rest and Mm -hmm. that, that kind of, um, rhythm and pace that we approach a lot of our favorite activities with is really not on offer for most Mm -hmm. of us. Yeah. I mean, I know that sometimes I get so like glued to my laptop and glued to my research that I forget to go out into nature and to go hiking and things like that. And then I'm like, this is why I'm doing that. (laughs) That whole thing that I'm doing to try and save nature is, this is why. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it brings you, yeah, definitely brings you back into your, your body and gives you, yeah, you need rest and you need to regenerate and, and yeah, get ideas. And I always find my best ideas are always happen when I'm out hiking, not when I'm sat at my laptop. (laughs) Right. I could literally ask you about a million questions about everything that you've just said, um, but I'm going to let you go because <laughs> I know you have other things to do. But I really, really appreciate your time and thank you so much for joining me. Like I've been so fascinated with everything that I've read and it really has just made me look at things really, really differently and introduce areas of society into into things that I'd never really thought about and made me think about how yeah how my own kind of gender and my that actually affects the way that I 
behave towards the environment and it's just so fascinating so yeah enjoyed really like all of the research I've done on your research and reading it all has just been wonderful so thanks for doing it (laughs) thank you I I mean it's always a pleasure to talk about the work that you do so I Mm -hmm. really appreciate the opportunity Before we let you go, we wanted to acknowledge a few new Patreon subscribers that recently joined our growing Earth to Humans community after our last episode. Ellen, Dale, Deidre, and Greg, your support means the world to us, and thank you so much. If you'd like to become a subscriber as well, you can support this podcast on Patreon for as little as $1 a month, with other tiers that give you access to our complete Earth to Humans archive as well as merch. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wildlands Collective. It's produced every other week by Serena Simons, Matt Podolsky, and Hannah Mulvaney. We're also now on Instagram at Earth to Humans Pod. Each episode of the show also has original artwork by Nozomi Takayabu, which you can see at wildlandsinc.org slash ETH. Our intro sequence was edited by Matt Podolsky, and audio samples used were provided by the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and today's music is by Blue Dot Sessions. <laughs>